I'd like for you to just be reflecting while we're sitting here for a few moments before we begin to sing on uh, some words from Psalm 89. And the psalmist writes, I will sing of the Lord's unfailing love forever. Young and old will hear of your faithfulness. Your unfailing love will last forever. Your faithfulness is as enduring as the heavens. Powerful is your arm, strong is your hand. Your right hand is lifted high in glorious strength. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Unfailing love and truth walk before you as attendants. Happy are those who hear the joyful call to worship, for they will walk in the light of your presence. So let me ask you this morning, are your eyes open yet? Not just physically, but are your eyes open to the goodness and the grace of God this morning? Are you expectant? Are you hopeful of what God uh, will do in your life and the, the needs that God will meet in your life today? And are you ready for what really might happen if we give ourselves to God? Let's pray together, shall we? God, open our eyes to see the wonder and beauty all around us. And when we pay attention and allow distractions to fall away, open our eyes that we may find your abundant gifts right in front of us, meeting our needs and filling the God-shaped empty spaces inside of us. Open our eyes in this time of worship that we might be changed by our encounter with you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And waited a long time for it to happen, only to discover that when it did, things didn't work out the way you thought they would. Most of us have had that kind of experience at least once. Some of us have been down that road many times. Perhaps you spent years saving money for, to buy an historic home only to discover that the foundation is cracked and the wood has termites. Or you finally got that new job you were dreaming of and six months later lost it because the company was downsizing. Perhaps you prayed for a soulmate and later wished you had waited a little longer and prayed a little harder. Or maybe you got married and found that he really wasn't perfect and he found out the same about you. Or maybe your friend who you wanted to go in business with double-crossed you in the end. See, sometimes it seems that the longer we wait for something, the greater the possibility of disappointment. As we wait, we begin to think about how good things will be when that dream finally comes true. And if we wait long enough, our expectation will be so high that we will almost inevitably be disappointed because nothing could ever be that good. As difficult as it is to deal with disappointment, we can still learn some very positive lessons through disappointment. We learn that disappointment teaches us humility. We can also uh, turn our focus, it also turns our focus away from the world and back to God. It can teach us to appreciate what we already have or liberate us from the bondage of having to have our own way all the time. See, disappointment is a natural and normal part of life. The Scottish preacher George Morrison said this Christian life is a land of hills and valleys. In the Old Testament, Solomon expressed kind of the same thought when he said there is a time to cry and a time to laugh. See, every hill also has a valley beside it. And that's particularly true in our family life because the people closest to us can bring us both joy and sorrow. Our homes can be happy one day, they can be very sad the next, things change quickly. In our study of the life of Abraham, we have come to an event that should have brought only joy to Abraham and Sarah. But while the birth of Isaac brought joy, 
it also brought its share of pain and sorrow. The text today from Genesis 21 contains two parts, the birth of Isaac in the first seven verses, and then the expulsion of Ishmael beginning in verse 8. And each has valuable lessons to offer us. Here's how the story begins. The Lord kept his word and did for Sarah exactly what he had promised. She became pregnant and she gave birth to a son for Abraham in his old age. This happened at just the time God had said it would. And Abraham named their son Isaac. Eight days after Isaac was born, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. And Sarah declared, God has brought me laughter. All who hear about this will laugh at me. Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a baby? And yet I have given Abraham a son in his old age. Now the most important verse perhaps in this whole chapter is verse 1. Here's what it says in the Living Bible. It says, Then God did as he had promised, and Sarah became pregnant and gave Abraham a baby son in his old age. At the time... God had said. Did you notice where God shows up in that verse? He's at the beginning and he's at the end. Then God did as he had promised at the time God had said. That's why Sarah got pregnant and that's why Abraham is now changing diapers at the age of 100. So approximately 25 years have passed since God first spoke to Abraham in his hometown of Ur and during that time, Abraham had many adventures and many spiritual ups and downs. And sometimes he passionately believed God and sometimes he doubted. And time and time again, God appears to him and reminds him of the promise. I'm sure Abraham often wondered why God was taking so long to keep his word. And I hope that the story of Isaac's birth will remind us of this truth. God's pattern is not to be early or late. He's not in a hurry, and he doesn't work according to our timetable. How often do we fret and fume and, and, and fuss when God delays his answers to our prayers? How much better to say, Lord, let your will be done in your time and in your way. This is the Apostle Paul's point in Romans chapter 4, where he says that Abraham believed God because he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. Now, to use Paul's terms, God wanted both Abraham and Sarah to be as good as dead physically so that when the child was born, only God would get the credit. No one could say it to Abraham at the age of 100, oh, you rascal Abraham. Because Abraham did nothing but believe what God had said. Then Abraham held little Isaac in his arms, and he knew that nothing was too hard for God. In Genesis 17 and 18, we're told that both Abraham and Sarah laughed in unbelief when God promised that within a year, Sarah would give birth to a child. But when the year had passed and Isaac was born, his name means laughter. It was a statement of total joy and maybe a reminder that God's promises are no laughing matter. But it's also a word of hope to us. When we make promises, we don't always fulfill them, do we? Despite our best intentions. But when God makes a promise, he doesn't waver. God fulfills his promises. Now we shift to the second part of the story, beginning in verse 8. And this is the strange and very sad part of the Bible. Um, now let me set the scene. When Isaac grew up and was about to be weaned, Abraham prepared a huge feast 
to celebrate the occasion. But Sarah saw Ishmael, saw Ishmael, the son of Abraham, and her Egyptian servant Hagar, making fun of her son Isaac. So she turned to Abraham and demanded, get rid of that slave woman and her son. He is not going to share the inheritance with my son Isaac. I won't have it. Now Sarah's words are harsh and they're bitter and they reflect the lingering resentment that she felt toward Hagar ever since Ishmael was born. And by now, Ishmael's about 15 or 16 years old. And perhaps Sarah had felt that she had had enough of his teenage insolence, and so she asked Abraham to get rid of the boy and his mother. Now there is a world of pain and sadness in verse 11. This upset Abraham very much because Ishmael was his son. Now, in order to please Sarah, he had to distance himself from the son that, of, uh, that he loved. Every parent can imagine the pain that ripped his heart. How do you say to your own flesh and blood, hey, leave, take off, and never come back? But that's what Sarah was asking him to do. And God agreed. He spoke to Abraham, beginning in verse 12, do not be upset over the boy, and your servant, do whatever Sarah tells you, for Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. But I will also make a nation of the descendants of Hagar's son, because he is your son too. So Abraham got up early the next morning, prepared food and a container of water, strapped them on Hagar's shoulders, and then he sent her away with their son, and she wandered aimlessly in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water was gone, she put the boy in the shade of a bush. Then she went and sat down by herself about a hundred yards away. I don't want to watch the boy die, she said as she burst into tears. But God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven. Hagar, what's wrong? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Go to him and comfort him, for I will make a great nation from his descendants. Then God opened Hagar's eyes, and she saw a well full of water. She quickly filled her water container and gave the boy a drink. Now Ishmael grew up in the desert. He became a skilled archer. He later married a woman from Egypt. He did indeed become the father of a great nation. To this day, many of the Arabic peoples trace their ancestry back to him. And as we look at this story, it's sobering to realize that once Abraham sent Ishmael away, he never ever saw him again. The deep rupture in this family was never repaired. Sarah and Hagar never became friends, and as far as we know, the only time Isaac and Ishmael ever met again was at the cave of Machpelah when they buried their father Abraham. So what did Abraham learn from this sad event? Well, no one made him sleep with Hagar 15 years earlier. True, it seemed like a good idea at the time, but his motivation was all wrong. He wanted to please Sarah, and he wanted to help God out. But Sarah was wrong to suggest the idea, and Abraham was doubly wrong to act on it. If he had been a better spiritual leader, maybe so much heartache could have been avoided. But here's a lesson that hopefully we all learn early in life, that choices have consequences. We can't turn left and right at the same time. We can't get married and still stay, still stay single. We can't move away and stay where we are. We can't take algebra and French in the same class period. And I'm sure that Abraham never dreamed 
that sleeping with Hagar would lead to so much heartache and so much confusion. In fact, I'm sure he justified it in his own mind as the best way to make his wife happy and to help God keep his promise of a son, but it didn't work out that way. And when we, com- when we compromise our standards, when we lower our convictions, when we try to take the moral and ethical shortcut, it seldom works out in the end because choices have consequences. Abraham learned that that the hard way as he watched his son Ishmael walk down that long, lonely road toward the desert. Now, some people reading this story may wonder about the fairness of God. And on one level, it's easy to understand why Hagar and Sarah didn't get along, and it's easy to see why Ishmael and Isaac probably would never grow up to be best friends. But why would God literally order Abraham to cast off Ishmael and Hagar in such a seemingly cold way? I think there might be a couple of answers to that question. One, that God knew something that Abraham didn't know. And he was planning to take special care of Ishmael there in the desert. God never intended for Hagar and Ishmael to die out there in the hot sun. The other answer is that God wanted to protect Isaac because he was the promised seed of Abraham. And that's the reason God gives us in verse 12. As long as Ishmael remains in the house, he would be a threat to God's plan. He had to go, even though it meant hardship and deep sorrow, and even though he and Hagar probably never understood why it happened. They felt rejected by Sarah and Abraham, as indeed they were. The spiritual meaning of all this is that in our walk with God, sometimes the good must go so that the best can come. Now think about all the athletes that we've been watching this week in the the Olympics in Rio. One fact stands out. If you want to compete at the highest level, you're going to need to sacrifice a lot of other things in your life. There are little girls who start practicing gymnastics at age two or three. And by the time they're in their teens, they're spending six or eight hours a day on the balance beam or practicing their floor exercise. The same is true of kayakers or hurdlers or swimmers or weightlifters or marksmen or tennis players or volleyball players or badminton players or bicyclists. All of them began years before learning how to do one thing better than anyone else in the world. And they spend thousands of hours and tens of thousands of dollars learning to be the best. And in the process, they give up any semblance of normal life. They get up earlier than normal people do, and all day long they work at perfecting that athletic skill. They exercise, they train, they diet, they lose weight, they gain weight, they lift weights, they bulk up, they slim down, they practice, they practice, they practice some more. Day after day, month after month, year after year. Why? So that they can compete with the very best athletes in the world. All of that in hopes of one shining moment when they stand on the podium and they will be the best at what they do, better than anybody else on the planet. See, it's true in every human endeavor. It doesn't matter if you're a golfer competing in the U.S. Open or a basketball player in the NBA Finals. How do you get to be the best? Talent counts, but the streets are filled with talented people who have never lived up to their potential. And sometimes people with relatively little talent rise to a level of excellence that no one expects. See, to accomplish anything in life, we've got to sometimes give up the good in order to achieve the best. And that means that some good things in our life have to go so that better things can come. 
This touches so many areas of our life, how we spend our time, especially our leisure hours. It ought to cause us to examine our habits, maybe the friends that we hang around with. Some things may not be wrong, but they're just not good for us. Sometimes friendships may not be bad, but they do pull us in the wrong direction if they're not the right friendships. They keep us from going where we need to go. And this principle applies to the hidden areas of our life as well, the parts of our life that no one ever sees. If we want to grow as a Christ follower, the good must go so that the best can come. Sometimes God says, you know, I want that thing to go because I have something better in mind for you. And oftentimes when God says that, we won't understand the reason because God doesn't always explain himself to us in advance. We simply have to obey without having full understanding. That's what trusting God is all about. But our text today contains two parts that seem at first to be completely different. The birth of Isaac is filled with joy, while the dismissal of Ishmael speaks of sorrow and pain and human failure. And yet God is intimately involved in both. He's the one who gave Abraham and Sarah Isaac after a 25-year wait. He's the one who ordered what Ishmael Uh, that Ishmael be moved out and took care of him in the wilderness, and it's the same God in both cases. He's the God of great promises. He's the God of great patience. He's the God of great wisdom. He's the God of great mercy. And that God is our God today. The God who made and kept the promise to Abraham is the God that we worship. And the God who cast out Ishmael and then protected him is the same God who watches over you and me. If you want it in one sentence, here it is. He's the God who works out his plan in his time, in his way. You know, the Apostle Paul made reference to this text in Galatians chapter 4 in the New Testament where he draws an analogy between Sarah and Hagar and between Ishmael and Isaac. The The women, he says, represent two covenants. Hagar stands for Mount Sinai where God gave the law, And Ishmael represents everyone who's trying to get to heaven by keeping the law. Sarah stands for the new covenant which came down to us from heaven. And Isaac represents believers in Jesus who are redeemed by God's grace. Listen to the words of chapter 4 verse 31 in Galatians. So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. There are two ways to get to heaven the way of Hagar and the way of Sarah. Hagar and Ishmael stand for lost people of the world who think that they can work their way to God. Sarah and Isaac stand for true believers who trust Jesus Christ alone for salvation. You may remember the name Dennis Rodman. Dennis used to play for the Detroit Pistons, um, the San Antonio Spurs, the Los Angeles Lakers, and maybe some of his best years with the Chicago Bulls in the NBA. In his book, Rodman talks about his preoccupation with suicide and with death. And a reporter asked him one day about that, and Rodman basically said that he was planning to end his own life sometime in the future at a time of his own choosing. And then came the logical question from the reporter, what happens after you die? Assuming there is a heaven and a hell, where do you think you will go? I think I'm right on the line between heaven and hell, he said. And stumped by that answer, the interviewer asked him what he meant. Would he go to purgatory for a while to atone for his sins? To his credit, Dennis Rodman, who's always refreshingly frank, said, no, I think I'll go to hell. 
If you added up all the good things I've done, compare it with all the bad things I've done, the bad far outweigh the good. And then he adds, but I'm trying to get that turned around. I hope someday I'll be floating on those white clouds of love. Now, I find it interesting that Rodman acknowledged that he was a sinner who deserved to spend eternity somewhere other than heaven. It's, it's rare to find anyone that honest enough to admit that, that fact. But I'm sure many people look at his antics and think, well, he's right. He's done some very strange things. After all, he kind of had this bad boy reputation in the NBA. But that, all of that misses the point. Dennis Rodman's eternity will not be based on his antics or his piercings or his hairstyle. His eternal destiny will be based on whether or not he has accepted the love and grace and forgiveness of God. But there's more. When we stand before God, our Lord will not compare the good with the bad because apart from Jesus Christ, the bad will always outweigh the good. Romans 3, 23 through 25 says, For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. And yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins, for God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. See, of all the doctrines in the Bible, I think this is one of the hardest to grasp, and that's the grace of God. Our minds struggle against that because we want to believe that we have a part to play in our redemption. How can God save me from my sins if I don't do my part? Good question. The answer is the only part that we play is to own up to the sin that makes salvation necessary. But I've already pointed out that this story teaches us different, the difference between the good and the best. Jesus set the same challenge before his disciples in Luke 14. He said, if you want to be my disciple, you must, by comparison, hate everyone else. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple And if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Some pretty strong words from Jesus. But they challenge us to consider the closest and dearest relationships in our life in light of our devotion to God. What can Jesus possibly mean when he says, if we do not hate our father and mother, we cannot be his disciple? Pretty strange words. Simply means that we must love Jesus. So much that our love for everything else pales by comparison. For some of us, that may mean following God over the objection of our friends, our family. It may mean that those closest to us will not understand why we choose to live the way we do or, uh, or not. They may even mock us to our face. They may tempt us, try to keep us quiet, stop being so radical, stop sharing your faith. They may even threaten to disown us if we follow the Lord. What will we do then? Well, in so many areas of our life, the good must go in order for the best to come. So let me ask you a question this morning. What is the good in your life? What are the habits? What are the dreams? What are the cherished friendships? What are the secret thoughts that need to go today in order for you to to give God your best and to receive the best from God? I don't know what the answer is to that, but God does, and in his spirit, he will speak truth to your heart if you're listening. You know, one final word, and that is, what if we give up the good? What if we give up the good things that we consider good in our life? How can we be sure that we will receive God's best in return? You know, our Lord did not leave us to wonder about that question either. Listen to his words in Mark 
uh, chapter 10. He says, yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now and return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. I don't believe we'll ever regret what we give up for Christ. Not in this life, nor in the life to come, but the saddest people in all the world are those who will cling stubbornly to what they believe they have because they don't dare give it up for God. I don't know exactly how God um, wants to apply this message to your life today, but if you're open and honest, I believe that God has something to say to each of us. And I challenge you to always choose God's best. Let's pray. God of grace, may we not turn away from the promptings of your spirit today, nor away from the gifts that you would like to give us. You offer us so much. Open our eyes to your love for us and everything um, that you would like to do, both with us and through us, by the power of your spirit. Help us always to choose your best in our lives. We pray with gratitude and a willing spirit. Amen. Will you stand again as we join our voices and praise to God? <laughs> 